After Jesus calmed the storm at sea, he said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with awe, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even wind and sea obey him? And that question, who then is this, comes in Mark chapter 4, but it echoes throughout the entire gospel, inviting us to consider and to respond to that same question. Who is Jesus Christ, and what does that mean for me? This is the Living the Word Bible Podcast, and I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. And today I am talking with Colleen Vermeulen. She's the director of the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan and also an excellent teacher of scripture. And she's been on this podcast before, encouraging us to read Paul's letters and also giving practical tips for reading the Bible with children. Colleen also is the author of the Introduction to Mark's Gospel in the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible. And as we enter a new liturgical year that focuses on Mark, I have asked her to talk about some of the unique aspects of this gospel and how it might enrich our faith as we make our way through it. So Colleen, welcome to the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Hey, Sarah. Great to be back. Yeah. You know, I just mentioned some of your professional credentials already, but uh, what else would you like people to know about you? Ooh, that is a tough question. You know, maybe it would be this, that there are so many amazing women who have been on the podcast, and so totally encourage anybody listening, go back and listen to old episodes. I've been doing that, and I'm really blessed and encouraged by them. But I think sometimes in today's day and age, when we think so much about like external credentials and bona fides and stuff like that, it can be easy to think that you know, women who are writing for something like the Living the Word Study Bible, you know, have some type of like special knowledge. And honestly, when it all comes down to it, we are all disciples of Jesus, just following him. And as the famous quote goes, from one beggar giving to another. So I think that that is what I would want people to know, that the scriptures are for everyone. And clearly that you are a disciple of Jesus following him. Well, you know, before we dive into that gospel, I have kind of a confession to make. You know, Mark is not really a book that I have read very much. And I was going through my personal Bible and I noticed that the pages of Matthew and Luke and John are just covered with notes. I mean, all of my kind of aha moments and little prayers and private insights. But in Mark, not so much, kind of a lot of blank pages there. And I was thinking that growing up, I kind of thought of Mark as a maybe a shorter version of Matthew, maybe even Matthew Light. <laughs> so I didn't read it very much. But there are a few places that have caught my attention. So I'm curious to ask you to start out with, what is your favorite passage in Mark? So like any book that you love, it is really hard to choose one favorite and to think that that would be your favorite on any day of the week because there's so many good things. And I know that we're going to get to talk about many favorite passages from Mark in this podcast. But one that I wanted to start out with is in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. I'll read it. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. 
And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. (laughs) Then again, Jesus laid his hands upon the man's eyes, and Jesus looked intently and was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And so I love this little unique healing because it's so unlike so many of like the famous things we remember about Jesus. You know, like we often ima- remember the most sudden dramatic changes. And to me, this just feels like a metaphor for my spiritual life hmm. that I need Jesus to open my eyes to the ordinary things that are around me bit by bit. Like, you know, sometimes it'll still feel fuzzy. And just that assurance that Jesus is still there. Like, he doesn't leave this man. Jesus, again, lays his hands upon his eyes. So Jesus is not, you know, interested in giving our hearts and minds clarity once. He's staying with us through the growth. I also love about it that Jesus takes this guy out of the village. So, you know, we don't know who followed him. We don't know if it was like a a ton of people followed them out, but there seems to be like this deliberate movement of Jesus out of the village. And I like that intimacy that, you know, a lot of the times the way God wants to speak to us is really just for us. You know, he wants to pull us aside from the crowd, take us apart. So I love that tender touch of Jesus in this unusual healing. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Kind of a similar to theme, which I don't know that I have a favorite, but as I was thinking about Mark, one of the things that often really stands out to me is that Jesus calms the sea or comes to them on the sea twice. And I read at the beginning a passage from chapter four, you know, where he calms the sea, where it's all raging and so on. And as I read that, I think, So often my world feels like that, like everything's raging around me and I get afraid and I panic and I need to be reminded, you know, that Jesus is there. And I love the way he says, um, you know, even when they still don't get it and he's asking them, why are they afraid? And he says, take heart. It is I have no fear. And right in the center, it is I. That's the answer for them to focus on him and to know who he is and his presence with them in that storm. And um, I'm sorry, you know what? I just conflated the two stories, didn't I? (laughs) The first one in chapter four, he tells them that he is there and they need that reminder. And then it's the second time when he says, take heart, it is I have no fear. But I like it that he works with them over time, that even though it takes twice, he's still working with them. And that the answer to their fear is in who he is. That's such a comfort that the more we get to know him and as our faith grows, that our fear will be kind of drowned by our faith. Yeah, I love that. And as you were joking about how those just multiple passages about crossing the sea, there's even more than those two that I was thinking of some other ones in Mark 
which really captures Mark's gospel, that there's just rapid movement. Jesus is moving around, doing all these things. It is easy to mix up this super fast action narrative type adventure. Um, And even with those sea crossings, in at least two of them, Jesus calls out the 12 who are in the boat for not understanding. So even in these like moments of chaos and, you know, like they're realizing God is with them, they're still not understanding and Jesus is still aware of it and he still just wants to be with them. Which is so comforting to us because, you know, he gives them some pretty big clues as to who he is and they they appear to be quite dense and not understanding it. But I know often I am in that position and it's comforting to me to know that these are the disciples and if Jesus would keep working with them to help them to understand who he is, he's going to work with me as well. Yeah. And it's one of those things that's truly unique about Mark's gospel. You know, we were talking about how for so many of us, uh, myself included, it is easy to just forget Mark's gospel. Yeah. Because there are so many longer teachings in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John. And as you and I were looking at the liturgical calendar as we're coming up in this new liturgical year, you know, we don't get Mark during some of those high seasons, like when we're most maybe attuned to the liturgical calendar, like Christmas and Lent and Easter and even Advent. He's very sparsely used, but he's truly the evangelist of ordinary time. And that's true in the literal sense, right? Like our calendar, this coming liturgical year, he is going to fill up most of our ordinary time. But I think even with a lowercase o, he is the evangelist that really captures Jesus's humanity in such vivid ways and the humanity of the 12 and just how ordinary and muddling and misunderstood and complicated and confused our daily lives can be. That's a wonderful summary of it. So before we go on, do you have another favorite that you want to share? We are probably going to uncover some of my other favorites as we go forward. Do you have another favorite? I do actually. And it's just, it's a very small aspect of it. So there's the story of Jesus healing the hemorrhaging woman. So there's this woman who has had this issue of blood, whatever that is, for years and years and years, and nothing has been able to help her. And so she kind of creeps into a crowd, almost hesitantly, but knowing that if she even can touch Jesus's garment, she feels that she might be healed. I kind of see her sneaking up behind him and just like touching his robe. And she doesn't want to disturb him, but this power goes out from him. And I think it's only Mark that maybe talks about this, how the power goes out from him and he feels it and he turns to her and then engages with her and tells her, you know, that she's healed. And I think one of the reasons that I love this is if you actually go to Magdala in the Holy Land, there's this chapel of encounter and someone has painted this huge mural where you feel as though you are down at foot level, you know, ankle level with Jesus. There's all these feet everywhere, and you've got the feet of Jesus in the middle and this hand reaching out and this spark that's going out where she touches his robe. And I I love that image of the power of Jesus's touch 
not just when he reached out, like you're talking about him healing the blind man, but when she reached out to him. And it just gives me a great courage and desire, I guess, to reach out to Jesus and feel that touch. Yeah. And you really hit upon one of those things that is unique to Mark's style of writing a gospel, that he gives us so more colorful details, like names and extra adjectives and adverbs and things that just really describe the scene. So it is true that about 80 to 90% of Mark's gospel is almost identically in the gospel of Matthew. But Matthew often shortens it and takes out some of those real personal things like names and colors and feelings and where stuff happened. So we just get this sense of like really being able to imagine that that scene that you just talked about. And another aspect of Mark's, you know, true artistry as a gospel writer is he seems to deliberately like to sandwich stories together so that we get a deeper meaning. And that one with the hemorrhaging woman is a classic example of that because Jesus actually ends up in the position to be touched by this woman because he is interrupted from actually being at the synagogue ruler's house to heal a girl. Yeah, And the way Jesus um, gets interrupted or changes his plans, like when he was walking on the sea, is very, very prominent in Mark's gospel, which is, I just find that so encouraging, like that the king of kings and ruler of the universe actually changes his plans depending on Mm. our needs. Well, I love the way you described Mark's artistry, and it's almost like he did the film script. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he has all those little details that really make it personal and that bring it to life. And Matthew is interrupting his and making them shorter because he goes on to give a lot of teaching. And so he's pairing up the teaching with the action, but Mark is just focusing on the action. I love it. I've never thought of that before, but that's so true. If you were to make a movie film, Mark's would be the one that you would have to do the least work to adapt because yeah. it's mostly action and things are happening. Whereas, you know, in a movie, you'd have to figure out what am I going to do with these long speeches of Jesus that Matthew or John capture? And Luke's gospel, his would be the musical, the Broadway musical with all of the singing at the beginning. Oh, I like that. Yes, it would. I w- wish that you would talk a little bit uh, more about what is unique about Mark. So you've talked about his artistry. What are some of the special features that we get just with Mark that we would miss if there was no gospel of Mark? Yeah. So we mentioned a few of them already. So one is that he loves to pair up stories, like the story of the little girl's healing and the hemorrhaging woman. So Mark does this a few times throughout his gospel. Another thing that we, we kind of started to talk about is how Mark does not hold back on capturing Jesus's emotion. Like we hear that Jesus, you know, we, we believe he's 100% human, and that means his emotions are as varied as ours are. So he experiences frustration. He experiences like the desire to be truly compassionate. All of these feelings 
that we experience, Jesus does too. And Mark actually talks about it. Um, Some of the other gospel writers are a little bit lighter on describing Jesus's feelings. Another aspect is that Mark's gospel is going to move along super fast. So when you open it up and look at chapter one, you might do a double take and be like, wait wait a second, we're just starting? There's no, Jesus is not a baby. He just starts with ministry. He starts proclaiming the gospel. And Mark even uses the word immediately, something like 40 times in the first two chapters. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like a breathless sense that like, this is this is spinning uh, to us. It might seem like it's spinning out of control, but obviously God's in control. But <laughs> God's plan is so powerful and important and urgent that it needs to happen immediately. And so Mark, hmm. I think, captures that sense of um, drama and dynamism that God is breaking in to the human world in a new way. Oh, that's beautiful. And, you know, just to go back to what you said a minute ago, I think that's one of the things that really stands out to me most as I open up Mark. It's like Jesus just appears fully grown. I mean, the first thing, he rises out of the waters from his baptism by John. That's his like first action. He's coming up out of the water, not being born to Mary, not the word becoming flesh like in John, rising out of the waters of baptism, ready to go. You know, and right before that, we get John the Baptist saying, get ready. Yeah. Here he comes. And then we're just right in the middle of it. So uh, why do you think Mark does that? I mean, I, I kind of miss that, the infancy narratives and everything. Why does he do that? Well, and he does it with, you know, even more than just the infancy narratives. Like if we look at that description of John the Baptist, you know, we don't get the drama of other people coming out and arguing with John, and we don't hear those conversations like we hear in some of the other Gospels. And even after that baptism in the Jordan, when Jesus goes out into the desert, right? Remember the temptations, mm-hmm, all that stuff? Mm-hmm. Nope, not in Mark's Gospel. It's just a really simple two verses, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Bam. And that's it. No Old Testament references. No. And, you know, if you think about Matthew's gospel, he is the one who is always giving his research citations. Like if you were writing Mm -hmm. an essay, he always says, this is according to the prophet so-and-so, showing how Jesus fulfills all these things. Mark isn't trying to really prove to us that, you know, Jesus fulfills certain Old Testament prophecies. Mark is just flat out putting it out there that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you believe that and choose to follow him, then that's it. That has the life-changing implications. And so while the details that we see in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and Gospel of Matthew they give us, you know, a wonderful symbolic richness, I think, about mm-hmm. a lot of Jesus's early life. And they show us his background and they reveal plenty of things. But they're not actually the main message. And I think sometimes we can lose sight of that because those are very famous passages. But if we think of, say, St. Paul's many letters, he doesn't, you know, write a lot about Jesus's early years because that is the lead up 
That's the lead up to the main event, which is that Jesus saves us through his own choice, through his sacrificial death on the cross, and he offers us eternal life. That is the main story. And both Paul and Mark really make that clear. They take away the distractions for us in a way. The other thing I was thinking of as you were talking is that, you know, Matthew's kind of explaining it in light of all the prophecies and, you know, this is the one you've been waiting for all this time. Mark is doing something that, uh, okay, I'm just thinking this as I talk. So hopefully I say it right. I feel like Mark is standing by Jesus and I'm in front of him and he's grabbing my hand and saying, hey, I want you to meet this guy. It's like, The whole Bible is supposed to do that, right? It's supposed to introduce us to the person of Christ. And I feel like Mark is doing that. So he's not saying, let me explain to you, you know, why you should believe in him. He's just saying, check this out. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, if you've ever heard that expression, sometimes we talk about how it's possible to know about Jesus without knowing Jesus in relationship. and. With some of the other Gospels, you know, there's plenty you can read in the Gospel of Matthew to know about Jesus. And mm-hmm. you could write essays about Jesus' great teaching from the Gospel of Matthew. But, you know, someone I could, you know, someone could do that, but without actually personally contemplating Jesus as a human who's true God, true man, our friend, our brother, our savior. And I think Mark um, really just doesn't want us to miss that. With what you were saying, it it really connects to the very first line of his gospel. Oh, how so? So Mark begins this way. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. And he's the only evangelist, the only gospel author to actually use that word gospel in that way. And he wasn't inventing this term. So the word gospel, as we hear it in English, is the Greek word uh, that would be spelled something like E-V-A-N-G-E-L. So evangel, like the word evangelism or Mm -hmm. evangelization. And we know that that means the good news. But in the first century, this was the word that they would have used if, like, say, a king or an emperor won a great battle over a foreign army. or Something like if there was like a royal wedding, you know, and there was going to be a new alliance between great powers, or if a a new heir to the throne had been born. So it was used for things that were not just good news, but significant news that was going to alter the course of the earth. Hmm. And that is the word that Mark chooses. And his audience would know that in the first century. So he's saying that. Jesus is the Christ, which means the chosen anointed one, and he is the son of God. And that is going to be a gospel. That is an announcement that is not just good, but also so significant. It's going to change everything. And like you said, from that point on, it's like, hey, watch it. Watch this happen. Yeah. And so the really interesting thing, though, is, as I as I brought out in the opening verse that I read, Yet this question goes through the whole thing. Who is he? Who do you say that I am? 
who is he? Who is he? And the disciples in particular never seem to know who he is, but it's announced right at the beginning of the gospel. So we're kind of onlookers watching their confusion. Exactly. <laughs> Even though we're in the know, it's kind of a funny thing. Yeah. And that perspective is really helpful to keep in mind when you read the gospel of Mark, that the narrator and you, the reader, know more than the 12 disciples. That's definitely the way it's crafted that they are the ones who are very unknowing, whereas we are in the know. And Mark tells us that right up front by saying the Son of God. Yeah. You know, if you think of Matthew's gospel, it starts off with Son of David, Son of Abraham, which are significant titles, but they're a little slightly more cryptic. They're not as blunt. So you drew my attention the other day to uh, something that St. John Paul II wrote in one of his apostolic exhortations. Um, I don't know if I can say this right. Catechesis tradendi, tradendi. Yes, it's one of his oldest ones from the very beginning of his pontificate. And he's talking about, you know, catechesis. How do we Mm -hmm. echo and pass on the faith? So the the thing that you mentioned to me is that he said that Matthew had been called the catechist gospel. And as you were just saying a minute ago, you know, he's kind of explaining to us what this good news is. But Mark is the catechumen's gospel who and a catechumen, you know, is a gospel for Christians who are under instruction. You know, maybe they're preparing for baptism or confirmation. Why would Mark be such a good gospel for a catechumen? Yeah. So when I read that quote from Pope St. John Paul II many years ago, it was like a light bulb went off on my head of the relationship between the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Matthew. That catechesis is what happens after we make that intentional, life-changing decision to be a follower of Jesus, to be his disciple. Then we enter into like a period of catechesis in our life that lasts till the day we die. But before that moment, a catechumen, you know, many of us have seen catechumen at masses doing the rite of um, election or at the Easter vigil, maybe being baptized. For them, the question, and it's a question we all hear at baptism, is do you have faith? Hmm. That's the question. Not, do you understand all the teachings and riches of the church? Do you understand everything that Jesus has said? Do you know the moral life, right? We can think of all of these like really complex, deep things. And those are good. Those are the journey of our lifetime. You know, those are our eyes slowly becoming more and more open. But the main question is the one that we give to catechumen, the question of baptism. Do you have faith? And not just an abstract faith, like, you know, life's going to be good. I have faith. No. Do you have faith that Jesus is the Son of God and Lord and your Savior? And I think Mark's gospel just puts that out there because we see all of these examples of people who are answering that question with a yes. And it doesn't matter how nervous or unsure or confused that yes is. We don't have to be perfect to say yes. So there's that yes that you say when you're a catechumen, officially. I mean, I was a catechumen once. But that doesn't mean you stop reading this gospel, and it also doesn't mean that that question is not continually posed to you. And I go back once again to that uh, question that Jesus asked the disciples in 
chapter four, when the storm is raging all around them. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Have you no faith? And so I can have said yes to Jesus to be in my life, but in the middle of the storm that's hitting me right now in my life, you know, do I have faith in him still that he's the son of God, that he is defeat, you know, he has defeated evil and that he will continue to fight on my behalf, that he can heal me, all these different things. Do I have faith? Yeah, one of the very evocative words that Mark gives us in the in one of those storm moments is he actually, you know, Jesus mentions the hardness of their hearts. Mm-hmm. Are your hearts hardened? And that's an evocative phrase, you know, not a general one, because your mind might already be going to, oh, like Pharaoh and the Egyptians and murmuring in the desert, right? Like we hear that phrase, we hear it repeated in the Psalms, harden not your hearts. And it's an interesting one because it requires our action. So just like giving a yes requires our action, you know, it's not passive. Um, like you were mentioning giving like that. Yes. I was baptized as a baby, so I didn't get to give that. Yes. Mm. Um, I, I did later on in my life outside of the sacrament of baptism, but just like a yes is not a passive declaration. Hardening your own heart is also not a passive thing. You know, it, it means actually maybe closing out or pushing God aside. So Jesus is really reminding them, like you said, that it's not like you can say yes once and then never actually use the gift that you've been given. I think a gift makes a wonderful image because it shows us that the initiative is God's. God gives us the gift of eternal friendship and communion and life with him. He gives us that gift. We have to take it. It's not just automatic. We have to take it and we have to unwrap it. But I think that unwrapping doesn't happen in a moment. That Mm. unwrapping, we can imagine like layers of an onion, a gift onion. I don't know. We shouldn't mix this metaphor, but a gift onion. But peeling back the layers of that gift throughout your life and just finding the deeper richness within it, that does take action to keep Mm. peeling back those layers. And the time that it says that the disciples did not understand, but their hearts were hardened, it was after he came to them walking on the water. And this time they're not so afraid by the storm. I mean, they were having difficulty with the wind, but they're afraid of him when he comes walking to them on the water. This whole episode happens after he multiplied the loaves. And it says, he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Yes. And that is one of those special mark things about weaving stories together. Because it's hard to catch with your ear, but then when you hear it, you're like, wait a second, like what? We're in the boat. Yeah. And now we're being clued back in to whatever they're experiencing in that boat, the root cause goes back to the multiplication of the loaves. Or maybe it's even that, you know, they, they've just witnessed this amazing multiplication of the loaves and they leave from there. And you would think that the faith that they got in that moment would carry them over to the next thing. 
but they've already forgotten. And that is like the children of Israel. You know, God carries them across the Red Sea and drowns everyone behind them. And, you know, a few days later, they're complaining and, and want to go back to Egypt because they don't think God's going to take care of them. And we're like that. Yes, I feel like that day to day. Yeah. You no, know, one day I'm on like cloud nine, you know, maybe I had this great prayer experience. And then by the afternoon, I'm thinking like, oh, I'm so stressed out because I'm just trying to do everything myself and I'm not trusting in God. And then the next moment, you know, I'm reading the Bible or preparing dinner and just feeling really at peace. And I'm like, oh, Jesus is giving me such peace. So this might be why I like Mark's gospel, because I just <laughs> really relate to that up and down, kind of like riding the waves of a boat is how the disciples experience following Jesus. And, you know, for all that, that they don't understand, they keep following him. Yes. So we don't have to be like, they're not his disciples. They're not really following him. No, they're there. In spite of the not knowing. Yeah. And that means there's a place for all of us in whatever our walks of life are, however bumpy they are, however up, down, and all over the place on a different day of the week we feel, we are certainly not abnormal. We are just like them. I love that about the the end of this gospel when Jesus is dying on the cross. You mentioned before that Mark really shows his emotion. And it's so it's so dark the way Mark describes it and you see Jesus's doubt and so on. And yet you know, Father, why why have you forsaken me? And then that's followed by the um, the centurion seeing, surely this is the Son of God, the Son who just said to his Father, "Why have you forsaken me?" And then died brutally on the cross. And yet, there's something about that that the centurion is seeing. Here's the Son of God, and to me, it speaks of even when we're experiencing horrible things, <laughs> death even, knowing that God is still with you, even if you don't feel him there, that he is there. That's the ultimate faith that he showed. And that that centurion at the foot of Jesus, at, at the cross, he is a special person, very much so, in the Gospel of Mark, because he identifies and, and declares it with his voice, Jesus as the Son of God. He says, truly, this is the Son of God. And that was that very first phrase that Mark put in verse 1. And throughout everything that's gone on in Jesus' earthly ministry, between the start of the gospel and this moment on the cross, no one has made that crystal clear declaration of faith like this centurion. Which is perplexing, you know? Like, it's wonderful. I think this is just a great place to take to your own imagination as you meditate on the scripture, to just meditate on that. What did this centurion see in his lifetime? You know, a centurion is a commander of approximately 100 soldiers. Um, he's a Gentile, you know, so he's not the primary group that Jesus is witnessing to at this point in his life in a very overt way. Of course, he's doing it in small ways. And, you know, he didn't hear Jesus's teaching. You know, he's not in synagogues. He doesn't have an Old Testament background. And oh, by the way, he was overseeing the people who were executing Jesus on yeah. behalf of the government. So he's a pretty surprising person. 
to make this declaration. And Jesus hasn't even risen from the dead yet. That's the really amazing thing. Yeah. So I think it's, it is just a profound moment worth imagining what might be in this person's heart or mind or what was he feeling? What moved him? And what is the power of Christ? Uh, I'm picturing again it going out of his garment to that woman touching him. I mean, I don't think the centurion was touching him in that way, but he was there by the cross being touched by Christ and power went out from Jesus. I mean, this is like his first conversion after his death, but it's a fruit of his passion. It's so hopeful to me because sometimes we think that we have to explain, especially maybe when we're teachers, we have to explain everything to someone before they're going to get it. But sometimes Jesus just touches people and you can't explain it. Yeah. And we have to be open to that, you know, and what that can do in our life. Because if I was to imagine that centurion, sadly, they they crucified many people who were political prisoners and for treason. And this was probably not his first day watching this. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows how many times he had witnessed somebody being killed through crucifixion before? Who knows what, you know, his stay at work was like for him if he was might have been away from his family as a Roman soldier. Mm -hmm. So many things we don't know this side of eternity. Um, We'll probably meet this guy in in eternity that really just help us see, you know, how much God is ready to work in the ordinary stuff and mess of our lives. Yeah. Even the mess, even the horrible things. Yeah. Like who would say that, you know, being a Roman soldier in opposition in many ways to the Jews in in this area at that time could be a pathway to having this divine encounter. Yeah, it's certainly not something I would pick. No, you would expect someone in a synagogue, someone who yeah. is a scribe, someone who is, you know, reading the scriptures to have a great revelation about who Jesus is. But no, Jesus is interested in all of us. And maybe all we need to do, because a lot of people don't feel equipped to teach or to explain but is to do what Mark does in this gospel, you know, grab someone by the hand and say, hey, I want you to meet somebody and let Jesus do that work or bring them to someone else who can explain and so on. Yeah. And it's one of the most powerful ways that we can evangelize is by talking about the divine encounters that we've had in our own life, Mm -hmm. because we're experts in those things. You know, you don't have to worry about like, oh, am I going to quote John Paul II wrong? Or, oh, I don't know if this is in the catechism. But if you tell your own story with that color, like now Mark includes, you know, he has such color about people and names and places. We all have stories of times we knew that God was real, without a doubt. And we experienced that power. and. If we tell those stories, you know, just among our friends, our coworkers, whenever the situation arises, like Mark did, there's something so authentic in that, that it impacts people. It it gives us space for the Holy Spirit to move. And we don't have to feel nervous about knowing such and such church teaching or what about this ethical question, right? Because we're experts in our own life. No one can tell you you're wrong when you tell your own story. They don't have to like it, but they can't say you're factually inaccurate. Right. As this is coming out, 
We've just started a new liturgical year, but we're in Advent. We're on our way to Bethlehem to see that baby who is being born. And as we noticed at the beginning, you know, Mark doesn't have infancy narratives, and yet his is the focal gospel for this coming year. So what does the church give us from Mark during Advent? Anything? The first two Sundays have passages from Mark, and we already talked about that one in chapter one with John the Baptist. And so we actually kick off Advent in year B with the end of Mark chapter 13. So this is the end of a very long speech that Jesus gives. And and he gives this speech because his disciples are like captivated by staring at the giant temple in Jerusalem. And they want him to look at the temple and go, ooh, and ah, and see how big it is. And they're totally like bedazzled by this giant temple. So after the end of this, Jesus says, Of that day or that hour, no one knows. And so Jesus is talking about the coming, his second coming. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch, Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So watching and waiting, which of course is a big theme of Advent. Yes, so this is how we start off Advent you know, somewhat in a counterintuitive place of thinking about that great and final coming of the Son of God, where God's plan is complete and everything reaches its true and perfect and beautiful fulfillment in God. Everything that God has been allowing to happen in fits and starts and ups and downs in our personal life and in the life of our world, all of that comes to its completion. And I think it is, it's challenging and encouraging what Jesus says here, because he tells them twice, don't worry about when this is going to happen. So Jesus makes it entirely clear that there's nothing for us to figure out, like when the end of the world is going to happen. That is just a distraction. He tells us again and again, it's not something that we know and not something that we can be figuring out. But he tells them that during this this time of waiting, in addition to watching and praying, he gives us an analogy here. Jesus says, this long time of human history. So this is a time that we live in, you know, since Jesus ascended to heaven up until now and into the future, whether it's one year, 100 years, 100,000 billion years, we don't know. That in this time, it's like if a man goes away on a really long trip, a really long journey. And this man apparently owns a lot of stuff and he leaves his home and he puts his servants in charge, each with their own work. And that's us. You know, God is watching and waiting and he's involved with everything in our world, but he gives it a long time because he's given us work to do. 
We can pray and watch, but he's also given us certain things to do. And if you really sit down and think about that, it's like, wow, that is an incredible amount of trust. I mean, if God is like a homeowner, I don't know if I want him to leave on a super long trip and leave me to take care of his house, right? Like, I'm pretty flawed. Um, But God knows that we're all flawed. He knows that we're all sinners. He knows that we all have weaknesses. But he also knows that we have strengths. And he gives us natural talents. He gives us spiritual gifts. He trusts us enough to give it time. And so while we can speculate a lot and just wonder, like, why does God let all this stuff happen? We know that God is letting it happen for a reason. And it has something to do with waiting and something to do with what he is directly working in the world through each of us. That is really powerful. I feel like you've given us so many good reasons that we should read Mark and things to pay attention to as we move forward and hear it during this next year. Do you have any suggestions on how we might read it? Two suggestions that are entirely different. So one option is Mark's gospel is short. You could read it in one sitting. Oh, yeah. So if you have, you know, time, you just maybe set aside some time, like cup of coffee and read Mark's gospel all the way through and just see what happens. See what you feel. See, see what you feel called to pray on. So that's one suggestion. A second one is um, we're all super busy now with Advent and Christmas. So just file this away. And in January, when you start the new year, make it a New Year's resolution to read the Gospel of Mark during ordinary time at the pace that we do it in the Sunday lectionary. Mm -hmm. So you can totally do this because you're going to hear a passage at Mass on Sundays and just use that to pace yourself through the Gospel during ordinary time. Very, very doable. Not a lot of reading. Nice. And it does take us right through. So just sticking with the Sunday readings would help you to do that. And I think keeping in mind the things that we've been talking about, I think you'll find that it really comes alive. So as always, Colleen, I like to close by just prayerfully reflecting on scripture. And previously on this podcast, I've asked you for your favorite passages. I wonder if today, you know, maybe there's a a particular passage that you would like to leave us with that I could pray with. Yeah. So The final thing that Jesus does before he gets to Jerusalem in Mark's gospel comes in chapter 10, verse 46. And Mark, with his like amazing artistry and detail, he captures everything in this passage that has been in the gospel up to this point. So Mm -hmm. it's like the summary of his major areas of emphasis. So it starts in verse 46. And then it ends in verse 52. Okay. So why don't I read that now? And if you're listening, you might want to either close your eyes or turn to it in your Bible, Mark 10, 46 to 52. And I will read it and then close us in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. 
And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, rise, he's calling you. And throwing off his mantle, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Master, let me receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him on the way. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word, and particularly today for this gospel that asks us to consider who is your son, Jesus Christ? What do we want him to do for us? And what is our response to him? May that word dwell in us richly as we hear it throughout this year and as we read it, whether privately or with other people. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder this good news. Give us grace to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Word, pray for us. So, Colleen, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. I think we could go on forever. I really enjoy talking with you about Scripture. Where can we reach you or, uh, more importantly, find out more about your ministry? You can find the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan at cbsmich.org. We have dozens of in-person classes in Michigan, online classes that people around the world take, and we help people start satellite groups wherever you are. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. Have a great Advent. This is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me every Thursday for conversations with women like Colleen who love and live God's Word. You can also join our Instagram community. You can find us at Living the Word Bible. And I pray that God will bless you, especially this Advent, as you read His Word.